You are about to take part in a session from a Discipleship Bible School held at YWAM Richmond in the spring of 2022, and we are so grateful you are here. So much prayer went into every element of this course, from recruitment to content editing, and we are convinced you will leave this knowing God a little deeper. The Discipleship Bible School, or DBS, is an opportunity to survey the entirety of Scripture to discover God's redemptive plan for all of humanity. Over the course of 12 weeks, teachers explored the Bible section by section, not only to deepen students' understanding of what was written then, but reveal what we are being invited into now. If you like what you are hearing, visit ywamva.org to discover what courses we are offering, ways you can journey with our team, and other content created to help you know God and make Him known. Everything you hear was created as a step of faith by a team of YWAMers and volunteers who felt God inviting them to capture the DBS in its entirety, over 120 hours of content. If this content blesses you, consider supporting future schools and content by giving at ywamrichmond.org donate. Thank you so much for listening, and we can't wait for you to experience God today. Acts. We're jumping back into Acts. When we last left off, we were talking about the first seven-ish chapters, and not yet at seven, maybe the first six chapters, and a lot had happened. The disciples had been following Jesus. Jesus died. They were sad. Jesus came back. They were elated. Then they're like, what does this mean for life? And Jesus spent 40 days with them, told them he was going to send a helper. So they actually listened to him this time. They wait. The helper comes, changes everything. They, whatever their capacity was, didn't matter anymore. The spirit had a higher capacity. Whatever their knowledge was, whatever their thoughts were, didn't matter. The spirit had something higher. And they were doing abundantly more than they could have asked for or imagined. And so when we stopped, we were like right at that happy part, right before we hit what Jesus had also promised, in this world you will have trouble. So that's where we're going to start off. But before we jump in, what are we going to do? We're going to invite the Spirit. Because again, whatever I've got, the 20 slides remaining on this one and then the Acts 2 or Acts Part 2 slides, whatever's in there, if the Holy Spirit's like, throw it away, we're going off script, then we're going to do it, right? Um, So we want to be attentive. But we also want to be invitational because we have a lot of reasons why we aren't always invitational and we don't have to do that. I'm going to put my phone not on vibrate because there is a microphone on this stand and the sound guys will hate it. All right, so as always, you just position yourself in whatever way that looks or feels for you. Don't stress over it. If you're still like, ah, this Holy Spirit thing is still weird, don't stress over it. Uh, if something pops in your mind, just write it down. Just write it down, you know? And then we'll jump from there. Sound good? <clears throat> Father God, we just thank you that you are God and you are good. And just for the reality that you have sent a helper. And we did not deserve that. Um, we don't even know what to do with that sometimes. And nonetheless, um, you send a helper. The spirit that we are reading about now is still present and accessible today. So as we step into this time, that could be a lot of things in our mind. Um, We want to release all that to you. 
We want to welcome whatever you want to bring, but right now we want to honor you by just being quiet, stilling our mind, stilling our thoughts, and just being still before you. And if there's anything that you want to speak, we are listening, but you don't have to give us anything. We want to give this time to you. So Father God, this is your time. We are yours. Here we are. And we thank you in advance for how we believe you will work. Let's pray in his holy name. Amen. All right, so we have this assumption we like to make that when we're seeking God, when we're doing what we feel like God's telling us to do, we think things are going to work out. We, we think things should work out. Things should go well. We shouldn't really run into any trouble. And we know that passage John 16, 33, I've told you these things so that in me, you may have peace. In this world, you will have trouble. Ha, but take heart. I have overcome the world. We like the first part. We like the last part. We don't like what's inside the sandwich. (laughs) We don't like that there will be trouble. And we like to think that it's just like maybe in every so often, maybe we'll get lucky and not have trouble, but we know some people do. So we know trouble exists, but we, every time trouble hits, We're surprised by it or upset by it or frustrated by it. And the reality is, is that Jesus is inviting us to operate in a way that is counter to how the world operates, inviting us to see a reality that is counter to the reality that we used to assume was true, inviting us to operate in ways that look like foolishness. So we're going to come up against trouble. And that's not even getting into the enemy (laughs) and the reality that when you're doing God's will, the enemy doesn't like that. And so in this world, you will have trouble. The disciples, the apostles, everybody that's now gathering, the thousands, right, are trying to live in a way that honors God, that's living in to love God and love others. And as a result, they're running into trouble. So what were some of the early challenges for the early church? We see in chapter 4, And as they were speaking to the people, the priest and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them. All right. It's escalating already. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. Anybody know what that story is from? Call it. Well, I know the context is that they're like giving to the poor, but um, yeah, the um, the wife's husband um, sells his property, which holds um, some of the profits, and is um, well tracked dead because he was dishonest in his dealings. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and she basically hid it for him, and mm-hmm. so thus she was guilty of the same thing. Yeah, and what's wild is. They didn't have to lie. Like, they didn't have to. There was no like forced giving. Like everyone must sell all you have and give to the you know give to the church so that we can give to the poor. That actually was a natural result of the spirit coming in. Generosity 
was a fruit of the spirit that came. And so they naturally just wanted to give. But what's interesting is, and we're going to talk more about this uh, some point in the week. Sometimes there are these foundational things that exist that then when you get the next group that comes in, if they didn't experience that first incarnation of it, it can become more informational. It can become more like, oh, this is the culture. This is, But now, instead of it being, oh my goodness, I'm feeling generous because of the indwelling of the spirit. It's like, oh, I guess we're supposed to give. Like, we're supposed to sell our stuff. And like, I don't want to look bad. So I guess I'm going to sell it. And whatever was going on in their minds, they decided to be deceptive. Let's, let's sell this. Let's say we're giving all the money, but let's not give all the money. And then the wife decided, I'm going to lie to cover this up. And so what we're seeing here in this world, you will have trouble is some of these unfortunate human qualities showing up in this body of believers that prior to this, we were reading verses of, they had all things in common and they fellowshiped together. I mean, it sounded amazing, right? And we wanted to believe that that would then just last forever. Um, but brokenness still existed. Uh, there were still, there was still a necessity for accountability, for humble introspection. And there were people who weren't uh, aligning themselves to that. And so you're finding these elements of brokenness starting to infiltrate the community. Now, in this specific instance, <laughs> as we read, behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. <laughs> it didn't go well for them. It didn't go well. It's a pretty intense story. It's, it's a shocking story at this point in Acts. Because up to this point, like it's, everything's seeming really great. Like, wow, they, they listened to Jesus. The Spirit showed up. And this is amazing. And now we get this moment where two people fall down dead because they lied and they deceived. And it scared people. And I'm trying to decide how deep I want to go into that. It can be hard to know what to think of that moment because it can bring up a lot of fear within us. Like, what if I make a mistake? Like, what if I get tripped up in my mind and end up lying or deceiving? Am I going to fall down dead? And I think the wrong takeaway from this is to get too lost in the weeds of it because really what we're talking about here and what Peter gets into is like, they did not understand the spirit. If they understood the spirit, that the spirit was within them and around them and they could not hide from the spirit, then like they wouldn't have even tried to have done it. But for some reason, they had gotten to a place where they not only didn't understand the spirit, but they didn't respect the spirit. And maybe that's the better place for us to land. Because if we get caught up in the understanding piece, that's I've been talking about that since yesterday is sometimes it's hard to understand what, what in the world is the Holy Spirit? Who is the Holy Spirit? Is it a who or is it a what? And what does that mean for me? And, and if I don't understand it, am I going to be struck down dead? But the big issue here is they struggled with actually showing respect, showing respect to the Spirit, showing respect to God, and they were operating for their own means, for their own lives, for their own intentions. And this ended up being a form of the trouble that they started to face. But the high priest rose up and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in public prison. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus 
and let them go. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard Stephen speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council, and they set up false witnesses. Now, when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at Stephen. They cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. A complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. Now, before that last one, we had a string of really heavy ones, right? It got rough. I mean, people were getting enraged and beating them, arresting them, wanting to kill them. It says they cast him out of the city and stoned him. We're going to come back to Stephen's story later. And then we can get to this last one, and it doesn't seem as bad. A complaint by the Hellenists rose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. But what we've got here sandwiched between this and the one about Ananias and Sapphira is not only was there threat outside, but within. Within the body, there are these elements of brokenness. There are these elements of trouble that left unchecked could be just as destructive, if not more destructive, than literal stones being thrown at them. So all of these things were things that the church was beginning to face. And for some, it may have caught them off guard because we're trying to seek God. We're trying to do the right thing. We're trying to honor God with our lives. We've get, I've sold everything I had and given it to the church, and now I'm being threatened, <laughs> right? And it's understandable. I mean, this is how they used to respond, right? So when we think about the story about withholding the, the funds, when we think about these, the indirect reality of them being uh, imprisoned and beaten, there's an element of reputation. The disciples often struggled with envy and greed, right? We've talked a few times about the, the sons of thunder wanting to be like Jesus' left and right side. There's a desire of like, we don't want to be the, the least of these, <laughs> like, we want to be up there with Jesus, right? And then when it comes to greed, the, the biggest example is Judas helping himself to the money bag, right? Judas selling Jesus out for silver. They had these elements within them that we're seeing in some people, even in this body that has the spirit among them. Making decisions around money, making decisions around reputation rather than making decisions based on What's going to be honoring to the Spirit? What's going to be honoring to the call to love God and love others? We've also seen the disciples have resistance to unsafe places. They didn't want to go to Samaria. Jesus, can we just go around right now? That's, that's the better route. Jesus, we can't go to Jerusalem. We, we already know they have tried to arrest you several times already. If we go back, they are going to arrest and beat you and maybe even kill you. So, we need to not go to Jerusalem. They wanted to resist these unsafe spaces. Their decision of where to go is based on their safety, not on invitation from the Spirit. And their reaction to the crucifixion. Peter knew that Jesus was going to die because he told them several times. And his response was fear because of his, the threat to his own life, the threat to his reputation. And this isn't just some guy. Like, he... 
Peter loved Jesus deeply. Peter was not afraid to die for Jesus at all. He says that. He says, I will, I will be in prison for you and I will die for you. I believe he really meant that. And the reason that I'm convinced he meant that, even though somebody could say, except when he had the opportunity, he didn't. Back it up a little bit. When we get to the garden and the guards come, what's Peter's response? Pulls out a sword and strikes a guard. That's, that's suicide. <laughs> like he knows this. He is going down in a blaze of glory. I'm going to defend Jesus to my death. Either I will get arrested or I will die. And I don't care because I will protect Jesus. He was willing to be imprisoned or die for Jesus. So what happened when Jesus was actually being interrogated and beaten and Peter slinked off? Well, even though that desire to honor Jesus was real, he still had a self-preservation. And some of it was around preserving his reputation. Going down in a blaze of glory, I mean, they make movies based on that trope, right? But some girl by a fire saying, weren't you with them? And then you getting dragged off and then humiliated just like Jesus is being humiliated. That's, a, that's not a fun death. That's not a glorious death. That's not a meaningful death. And he's still wondering, what is Jesus doing? Because this is not the death he's supposed to have, right? So he's making decisions based on his self-preservation, his mindset, rather than an invitation from the Spirit. And the rest of the disciples get despondent, right? We talked about the road to Maus yesterday. They were so, so brokenhearted that Jesus is literally walking with them and talking with them. And they're like, oh man, you haven't heard about Jesus before? And he's like, yeah, I kind of have heard about him. Right? Like, we can get like that. This is how they used to respond. But, then the Spirit comes. So how do they respond to these troubles now? So when there is a threat against him, instead of protecting himself like he did at the crucifixion, then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, and then he just lays out this, these deep theological truths that could get him beaten or arrested or stoned. He didn't care because he was filled with the Spirit. He sensed what the Spirit was inviting him to, and he, he went with it. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. They actually say something like this twice. They are commanded, do not talk about this Jesus anymore. And they're like, I mean, we could listen to you or we could listen to God and we're going to go with God on this one. Right? That's a bold thing to say to people that you know could take your life. And now look, uh, and now Lord, Look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. I want to point out two really important things here. So the second thing, the last thing we just read, is it was very clear that their lives were at threat <laughs> of being uh, injured or, or killed. And instead of protecting themselves, they're saying, all right, God, give us boldness. We want to keep on going. Give us boldness to keep on going, right? That was their response. Instead of running, it was like, we don't feel like you're telling us to go, so we're in it. So, 
Equip us with what we need. But the other thing, and this is the first part we see in this, is how often it emphasizes who it is that's doing the work. Grant your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal. And signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. They are very much aware this is not about them or their capacity or their power. And that's part of why they were able to have the boldness to say that second piece. It was so clear to them because they had been taking these steps of obedience, these crazy steps of faith, that the spirit was real and the spirit was at work, that when they hit this juncture where it's like, all right, things are escalating, we could die, they're like, and so be it. Give us what we need, God. We're, we're here. We're ready for this. You guys see any familiar language in that last scripture? Somebody does. Why <laughs> <laughs> you stretch out your hand? language you've seen before in several books, the Lord stretches out his hand. Um, and um, I'm actually curious, I would actually be curious to look up uh, the language and see if it's the same word that's mm. used in the Old Testament. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. And this is one of the beautiful things about DBS is you can see these connection points. We're going to see this a lot more, actually, when we get to the epistles. Because they come back to the Old Testament a lot. Sometimes it's direct quotes, and you're like, okay, they're quoting something. But it's really interesting when it's not a direct quote, and there's these little pieces of language and phrases that they work in that if you read it separate, you might not notice it. But when you read it together, you're like, wait a minute. They're saying the thing that he said, and he was saying the thing that was from here. And there's this richness that comes out of it, both on a literary level, but also you get a depth of meaning that's coming out of this. They're pulling from these traditions, these understandings that give a depth beyond just words on a page. So we keep on seeing how they respond. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. So instead of greed, instead of self-preservation, <clears throat> getting all choked up. I think it's that sentiment. <laughs> it was like one little moment. Uh, <laughs> so instead of like saying, I'd like to give, but I need to make sure I'm holding enough for myself, like so I'm okay, they're operating out of this understanding of God's, gonna, God's got us. God's going to provide. So if I feel like God's inviting me to be generous, I don't have to be afraid of giving as much as he's inviting me to give because he's going to cover me. Right? They're making financial decisions, life decisions, based on the invitation of the Spirit rather than their self-preservation. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that Christ is Jesus. So they had been threatened, they had been beaten, they'd been arrested, and their response is to rejoice that they were counted worthy to suffer. That's crazy. Right? That's crazy. But it wasn't. Anybody looking at it would see it was crazy, but they knew something different because their understanding of reality had changed. Self-preservation was no longer the goal. Being 
And a good situation was no longer the goal. Being in a bad situation was no longer something to be avoided because wherever God was inviting them, that's where they wanted to be. And even though they have been threatened multiple times, do not talk about Jesus. What did they do? They didn't cease teaching and preaching that, Je- that Christ is Jesus. They didn't cease. They kept on going. People didn't like that, right? They didn't like this persistence to be obedient to the Spirit. So we see an escalation, escalation as we go through Acts. So it starts off as mocking. We saw this in chapter 2. But others mocking said, they're filled with new wine. It's kind of like under their breath, like, man, bamboo, <laughs> this guy, right? It's kind of a casual, indirect response, and it escalates a little bit. The priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead, and they arrested them. Bless you, bless you. And so that, the first one is like just kind of conversation between Cassie and I. Now the second one is like, man, bamboo. Right? Like, it's, it's more than mocking. It may start to bring him into it. Now, it's not yet turned into something serious, but, like, I'm starting to develop stronger feelings about my annoyance with him. I'm not really annoyed, man. It's good. It's good, right? But, like, it builds up. It builds up. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus, and they further threatened them and let them go, finding no way to punish them. So now it's threats. Man, if you keep on doing what you're doing, next time, I'm going to let you go, but next time, right now, we're escalating, we're escalating, we're escalating. But the high priest rose up, and all who were, uh, were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in public prison. So now, like, jealousy is starting to come in. You're getting these deeper and deeper emotions that are coming in, and you're getting direct actions, arresting them, putting them in public prison. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. This is a far cry from mocking now. Enraged is not a small word. I mean, can you think of moments in your life when you were enraged? There's probably only a few, if any. Like enraged is is up there. It's not angry. Enraged, especially to the point of wanting to kill someone. This is where they were because they were talking about Jesus. They beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. So now it's getting physical. And it didn't stop there, did it? Because this is where we get into this guy. This is when things went into a very different direction. So let's talk about Stephen. What brought Stephen to the table? So you had this hodgepodge group of disciples coming from all different walks of life, invited by this one guy, Jesus. And so in the Gospels, what we see is they understood the structure as there's Jesus, the teacher, the rabbi, eventually, okay, the son of God. He's in charge, and we're kind of doing what he tells us to do. And there's like other people. There's other people following along with us. But like, it's Jesus, then it's us 12, and then the rest of them, and then your everyday person. That's how they understood it. Some of them wanted to kind of, again, escalate themselves up to, you know, there's Jesus, then me, and then the other disciples. And But once we get into the start of Acts, we see scripture used by Peter to discern that they should be intentional about the structure of the first church. All right, so we were 12, we lost Judas, but scripture says that he should be replaced. So it says, may another take his office. It's from Psalm 109.8. 
And then they say, he says this, so one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. So they have this understanding of structure. It can't just be us like kind of doing whatever. Like we feel like there needs to be some kind of centralized leadership with the spirit being the main lead, but then we are in these intentional positions and then we go from there. And it says, And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the wisdom, uh, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will anoint, <laughs> who we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Procurus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. So you had the initial thing, Jesus, and then us disciples. Jesus goes, they realize their scripture says there should be 12 of us, so let's continue with this. We'll trust the Spirit. And then you had this issue with the widows. Right. What's happening is you have the Hebrew Jews and you have the, Hele- uh, the Hebrew Christians and the Hellenistic Christians. The Hebrew Christians uh, were living in Jerusalem, but the Hellenistic Christians were coming from all over. Actually, I'm going to come to that in a second. No, I'll, I'll say it now. And Greek tended to be their main language. Right. So if we back up a little bit, and we will come to this more, you're getting different demographics. And what we've seen throughout human history is when you have people that are different, sometimes they don't know how to interact, how to be unified. Remember, this is one of the big themes, is unity. And there are widows from both of these groups that are being treated differently. It's becoming a big issue. And so what they realize is it can't just be us 12. We feel like the Spirit's giving us an invitation to also set aside seven who will focus on this specific area because we are feeling called to preaching the word and to prayer. This is what we feel like God has called and equipped us to do. And this other ministry is incredibly important, but we can't stretch it all thin. So let's bring in these other people. Let's think about those who have been walking alongside, who have been very committed. And this is how Stephen comes into the mix. So, okay, I'm going to go ahead and put all these up. So at this time, the body of believers were Jewish, and as we saw in Acts 2, they came from the breadth of the Jewish diaspora. So this is where the Jewish people were dispersed around the known world. The Hellenists were those who lived most of their lives in Greek-speaking locations, and Aramaic wasn't their primary language. This also implies different cultures, experiences. And some theorize that a reason for the move to Jerusalem, this is a little side note, uh, some theorize that a reason for the move to Jerusalem for many of the Hellenistic Jews was retirement which could explain the large number of widows because of their age. And then the seven that were invited in were all Hellenists with Greek names. But here's what's interesting. Let me go back to where it says, uh, Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. How often... Do you see a large group make a decision that the whole gathering, like, is yes, thumbs up. Like, it's not 
It's not as common as we really hope it would be. But this decision, that these seven important roles went to Hellenistic Christians, pleased the whole gathering. Like, even the Hebrew Christians saw that and they're like, yes, this feels right in our spirit. This feels right. This is good with us and good with the spirit. This is the big deal. So when we think about the widows, there's two big problems. All right. The first is that the widows were being treated differently simply based on their category. It's a big deal when you have a body of people that are supposed to be living in unity and people are being treated differently. You're going to see this theme come up again in some of what we talked about this week and some of Paul's stuff next week because they continue to struggle with this. They continue to struggle with treating people differently based on categories in their minds. So that's one big problem. The widow should not be treated differently. But the second is that there was a grumbling. All right. So you got the Greek word. I don't know if anybody likes to scrawl Greek out on your paper. Um, but this word grumbling, it's kind of like what I was talking about earlier. If like Cassie and I were like mocking over here, like, oh man, bamboo, right? can start off small and slightly negative, but over time it builds up. Maybe you've been in environments where things, there are some struggles for whatever reason, and people start like grumbling amongst each other, and it starts to pick up, right? Have you been in that space before? And then you see where over time, somebody who at first was just making offhand comments is now like saying it more, and they're starting to talk about specific people, and like you just hear this exasperation in their voice. Like grumbling is this really slick, nasty form of brokenness that, that we think is no big deal. But once it gets in, it's like, oh man, have y'all had to do some weeding yet on campus? Here's the thing with weeds. This is the, the sneaky thing about weeds is if you take care of weeds early on, it's very easy and not a problem. Their roots are just like these piddly little things and you just, whoop. I've got a big yard. And sometimes I just don't have time to weed or desire. And I think it's fine. I'll get to it later. I get to it later and you know what? That thing is this big and I can no longer pull it out with my own strength. Like there are some weeds that just like dig in and stretch out. And this is what happens with grumbling. Is it starts off as a small thing with a little bit of root. It's fine. You're just making some offhand comments. And before you know it, you look and suddenly there is deep disunity deep feelings of anger. We saw that escalation, right? Where it went from mocking to jealousy to enraged. And I've seen this happen in groups of believers. They get annoyed by something and unchecked, it turns into these strong emotions that can break people apart. So this wasn't some small thing of like, oh, some people aren't getting enough food. This was a serious issue for this body that's supposed to be unified. So Stephen is brought in full of the spirit right? And what happens? He's trying to seek God. And so in Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. So the seven are invited in and the spirit starts doing great things, amazing things, beautiful things. And what's the response? Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the uh, Cyrenians and of the Alexandrians and of those from Sicilia, Cilicia, and Asia rose up and disputed with Stephen. So what's interesting is essentially a group of Hellenists are coming up and arguing with this Hellenist Christian. And it makes you wonder, did they ever oppose 
Peter and the apostles? Or do they feel more comfortable kind of rising up against Stephen because they felt this uh, association that felt like they had power over him? Right? They felt sometimes because the Hebrew Jews called Jerusalem home and they were the rest of them, the Hellenists, were dispersed, they might have felt less valued, less important. And so sometimes we see this is if you get somebody that's looking at somebody that they feel like is above them, they might not oppose them. But if they see someone they feel like is on par with them or they can convince themselves as lower, they'll push back. So they're pushing back on Stephen. Here's a few things about this group. So the freedman is a blanket name for former slaves and their descendants. In the first century BC, Roman general Pompey captured some Jews, enslaved them, and took them to Rome. The Jewish slaves followed their religion so strictly, including refusing to work on the Sabbath and adhering to kosher law, that they were useless as slaves. So Pompey released them. The freedmen are descendants of these and other former slaves. The Cyrenians are from Cyrene in modern-day Libya, and the Alexandrians are from Alexandria in Egypt. At the time described in this passage, both cities have large populations of Jews. Cilicia is a province on the southeast coast of modern-day Asia Minor. Tarsus, where Paul comes from, is in Cilicia, Asia, and this context does not mean, Asia in this context does not mean the Eastern continent. In Stephen's era, the term Asia refers, referred to a province in the western part of modern-day Asia Minor. So, they could not withstand, so they're coming to argue with him, right? And they're thinking they're going to win this argument. They can't. They could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which Stephen was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, this man never ceases to speak words against the holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. So they're thinking they can defeat Stephen. And they could have if it was just Stephen. But what they didn't realize, it was Stephen and the Spirit. <laughs> and because of the Spirit, Stephen's speaking with a level of wisdom and boldness and confidence that he's not even arguing with them. He's just speaking what's true. They're caught up in arguing and they're losing and losing. And so it escalates. They've even stirred up other people. They brought false witnesses in. They seized him. They've done all these things. And does that bring Stephen down? No. They saw that his face was like the face of an angel. And the high priest said, are these things so? And, Jesus, and Stephen said, and what he goes into is this speech that, again, as we talked about with Peter, probably caught a lot of them off guard. Because it is this long, from verse 2 to verse 50, this long, detailed overview of Jewish history. Right? The kind of thing that Bamboo may expect you to be able to do at the end of DBS. <laughs> I want you to give this overview of the history of the Bible. Like, this is what Stephen's doing, but it's not Stephen, again. It's a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, full of grace and power. By the way, sometimes when you copy and paste from <laughs> verses from the internet, and they had those little notes like R, click R to see more things. I thought I got all of them. So Rolf, Rolf is not a word. I could have just said it in confidence, and y'all would have been like, oh man, do I, do I not know that word? Is that old English? 
But Stephen is speaking through the Holy Spirit. The Spirit is giving him words, and he's giving this detailed overview of the Jewish history, citing Abraham and Moses, our fathers. And this probably, for the most part, sounded good to them. And there's nothing they could disagree with. And then he says, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Whew. <laughs> He's reeling them in, reeling them in, then smacking them upside the head. So what is he doing here in this speech? Why is this the speech he gives? There's a lot of things he could have said. You can, when you read through it, you're like, Wait, what is, I don't understand. What's, what's, what's the point he's trying to make here? This feels very like out of place for what's going on here. Well, there's a lot of things he wants to touch on. A moment ago, I told you about some of the groups, the freedmen, the Alexandrians. They all represented the diaspora. They had this understanding of being sent from your home and in a place that's not your own home. And you see this theme working through what Stephen shares. It starts off talking about Abraham, who is sent. Go from your land. You will not get an inheritance, but your children will. His offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others. It talks about Egypt, and then it talks about Pharaoh dealing shrewdly with our race. Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian. This man led, led them out, so now they're being led out again. And then it talks about the tent and the temple, and even God saying, what is the place of my rest? It's this idea of where is home, of being spread out. And this would speak to these Hellenistic Jews, this idea of the diaspora, this idea of longing for home, longing for place. Now, he's also getting to this idea of the Holy Spirit. And he accuses them of always resisting the Holy Spirit. And somebody could be reading it as like, I mean, I heard about the Holy Spirit in Acts, but I don't remember seeing the Holy Spirit much in the Old Testament. What, what are you talking about? Well, he references a number of things that happen. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham. God removed him from there. There was a prophetic word on Egyptian enslavement. These things that were not Abraham were not man. Supernatural things that were happening to decide where he was going, what was happening, what would be. God was with Joseph and rescued him out of all of his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh. It was not Joseph that did these things. Joseph was enslaved and imprisoned. It was the spirit at work. An angel appeared in a flame, a fire, and a bush. This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel, performing wonders and signs. God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. Again, more expressions of the Spirit at work. It wasn't Moses doing these wonders and signs. It was the Spirit. The nations that God drove out before our fathers, it wasn't even them that were conquering the nations. When they went into the promised land, it was God through his Spirit sending them out, doing the conquering. And then we start to get an idea of some of the specific ways that this opposition happens. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? So it talks about the patriarch. Patriarchs were jealous of Joseph, who had received visions. When Moses is trying to step in, they said, who made you a ruler and judge over us? 
says, Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside, and in their hearts they turned to Egypt. So he's giving this thing, he's laying it out, this idea of diaspora, this idea of the spirit, this idea of their rejection, and then we get to that closing. That closing. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. Who you, received, uh, you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Now, this closing isn't out of nowhere. This pulls from a lot of some of the things that y'all have already touched on. Y'all spent time in Deuteronomy. And in Deuteronomy, we see, Circumcise there, therefore the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. Now, circumcision was a way for them to convey, for the Jewish people to convey, we are set apart. We are different. And as we'll find as we go into this week and as you go into next week, it became more of a binding requirement than it was an expression of being set apart for God. We're going to talk more about the fact that as more Gentiles come to the table, there were Jewish Christians who were like, ah, da, 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 da. you're not really in until you're circumcised. So you're going to have to take care of that. And there is an argument. This is where the Jerusalem Council is going to come in. And Deuteronomy is trying to hit at the heart that the, the big thing here is it's not that you're doing a physical thing. It's that you are setting yourself apart for God. So circumcise your heart. Like set apart your heart. Do something very real and permanent to your heart that makes it clear that you are not living for yourselves anymore. They were abiding by the law. These people that were coming against Stephen, and in their minds at least, were abiding by the law. And what Stephen's accusing them of is not actually having set their parts, hearts apart for God. In Malachi, from the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. So he's not accusing them of anything new. Elijah said, you, the people of Israel, killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And then Jesus, my teaching is not my own. It comes from the one who sent me. Anyone who chooses to do the will of God will not find, will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own. Whoever speaks on their own does so to gain personal glory. But he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is a man of truth. There is nothing false about him. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet not one of you keeps the law. So why are you trying to kill me? Right, so... What Stephen is saying in this really bold closing paragraph is not new, should not be new to them. They should know these passages with the exception of the one from John. <laughs> but some of them may have been around when Jesus said that. Like they should know the accusations that Stephen is levying against them. So do they say, oh man, you're right. I mean, I had forgotten about that passage in the scroll of Malachi. And you're right, Stephen. We've, we've messed up. That's not what they say. We get more escalation. And we find Stephen becoming the first martyr. Up to this point, there'd been insults and beatings and imprisonment. But this got intense. Now, when they heard these things, they were enraged. And they ground their teeth. I have never once in my life been so enraged that I ground my teeth. Like, that is, it's so intense that you are willing to do physical destruction 
to your teeth, to grind them down. You're so angry, you don't even care. This is how enraged they were. They ground their teeth at him. But he did not respond out of fear, did not say, oh, no, no, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. No, full of the Holy Spirit, Stephen gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God. And Jesus standing, not even sitting, standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And they did not like this. They cried out with a loud voice and they stopped their ears. All right, now imagine this. Imagine how enraged you have to be to just basically start shouting with your fingers in your ears so you can't hear what he's saying and you just rush forward. They then cast him out of the city and stoned him. No trial, no due process. They shouted, ground their teeth, plugged their ears, dragged him out, and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. We'll come back to him. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Here I am. I'm ready. Not, this is so bad. This is so awful. Why have you done this to me, God? No. The Spirit was so present with him. Again, it said, full of the Holy Spirit. And he's like, receive my spirit. And he didn't stop there. This is, this is really beautiful. Falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Forgiveness is a hard one, right? We struggle with forgiving people who did like a little thing to us. He was wrongfully murdered. And he calls out loud enough for each one of them to hear. Because by this point, they had to unplug their ears to pick up stones. So they can hear him now. Forgive them. Do not hold this sin against them. This is because of the Spirit. Stephen and of himself, I don't know how he would have responded in this moment. I don't know if he would have had the strength to even say something loudly, to be able to hold out that long. I think most of us would have balled up in a ball and covered our faces. You know, like in movies when somebody like gets knocked down and people are like kicking and hitting them, and they always cover up the face. No. He gets down on his knees and he shouts out as stones are hitting him that they would be forgiven because the Spirit was doing something abundantly more than protecting his life. Protecting his life was not the best case scenario. This is a hard one for us when we're talking about following the Spirit because we like to protect our lives. And I'm not even talking about like physical protection when there's threats against our lives. We protect our comfort. We protect our plans. We protect our financial security. We protect our reputation. Stephen was willing to let all of that go. I want to add to that too. Like, I, I, mean, I can't say I've been faced with the same situation as Stephen, mm -hmm. but I have experienced times in my life that demanded just courage and sometimes just like selfless living and like one time I was, 
I ended up rescuing so many other people. Um, there's sort of a long story to it, but I remember getting to the point where I was about to black out. Um, and somehow there was like kind of this joy and peace in that. Not, not the blacking out per se, I mean, it did get a little woozy, but um, just like there's something compelling about the spirit that takes you. Mm-hmm. And you find yourself being compelled to do things that you wouldn't rationally do or even think about doing. And yet at the moment, it's almost as if there's nothing else you could do. And I've come across this scripture many times, and it always speaks to me. Because, yeah, even in this moment, he is decided, like, I'm fucking dick my life. You know, it's like, mm-hmm. I'm doing the absolute best that I can do with this last moment that I have. And I'm joyful in doing it. Yeah. You know, uh, so I don't know. I guess I'm just inviting you guys to a place where you receive the Spirit in that same way. You find yourself ready and compelled to do what He's calling you to do, regardless of the consequences, yeah. regardless of what your adversaries are or what the cost is, yeah. um, rather than preserving what's ours. Yeah. And the invitation here isn't to feign contentment or rejoicing. Correct. Because on the front end of it, it's like, I don't know how I could be happy in a situation like that. And you know what? You're right. You're absolutely right. Because human reality and human logic, you, you can't rejoice in a situation like this. You're being hit by stones. You can't rejoice in a situation like this. The invitation for us is to know that there is actually a reality that is more real than the reality that we know. A reality in which you can suffer and you naturally rejoice. So the invitation isn't to force rejoicing, it's to seek the Spirit, to invite the Spirit, and the Spirit can bring that capacity. Because let's take it back to how they responded when they were starting to get beaten and imprisoned. They were rejoicing that they got to share in the suffering of Christ. I shared yesterday that I had been in this really hard work situation. It's about three years of such a painful space. And there was other things going on in life that were hard, but all of it combined made such a painful space that I just, I wanted God to free me from it. I wanted him to free me from it. It was so unfair. It was so unjust. And I remember there's one point where the weight of the injustice was so heavy that at our church, we meet at the Robinson Theater, which some of you might have gone to, you might go to at some point, but it's this normal theater space. So we put up chairs and there's no altar because it's not an actual church. And so what they do is they put pillows up at the front and that serves as a makeshift space where if you want to go up to the stage and pray. And so I remember one day I was just feeling the weight of the suffering so deeply that I went up and I'm on the pillows and I'm just talking to God and I'm just pressing into how unfair it is. And I, I wasn't saying it like he didn't know. Like I, I knew that he knew how unfair it was. I wasn't arguing with him. I actually felt close to him, but I didn't know what to do with it. And what he gave me was so beautiful because he reminded me of the verse of the invitation of sharing the suffering in Christ. And it was, I'd heard that verse many times before, but it was the first moment that I suddenly realized a connection to Christ. That just as I felt unjustly uh, attacked that these situations that I didn't deserve were happening, that I was being accused of things I didn't do, Jesus faced that too, to a higher extent. And I had been seeking God in that space, and he had reminded me to stay in the same way. Jesus was like, if there's any other way, because I know how bad this is going to be, but not my will, but yours be done. And in that moment, I understood that verse, sharing in the suffering of Christ, 
to a deeper uh, extent than I ever had before. And what Bamboo was just talking about is what I felt. I suddenly felt joy. I suddenly didn't want to leave the suffering because I'm like, I don't want to be out of suffering. I want to be where Jesus is. So if Jesus is sitting in the suffering with me, then I want to sit in the suffering. I had the same thing happen. Uh, the way that I also thought about it was this feeling of falling into a pit. You ever felt that feeling? Like you've just fallen into this deep pit and you can't get out. That's what this whole season felt like for me. This deep pit. And I'm trying and I'm trying and I'm trying to get out. It's so dark and I can't see a way out. And meanwhile, there are people that are either just walking by or maybe they're looking in. Oh, man, I'm sorry, Paul. And then they walk away. But the worst is when people, people I cared about, it's like they were looking down and they're like, why don't you just get out of the pit? I'm like, I'm trying to. Or it's your fault that you're in the pit. You're doing this to yourself. You're choosing to be in the pit. I felt so alone. I kept saying, God, take me out of this pit. God, free me from this pit. God, why are you not freeing me from this pit? I don't know if anybody likes photography, but there's a few times in high school and college I took a photography class, and you might have seen in movies, it, there's not much film anymore, but back when there was film, <laughs> the way you would develop it is you would go into a dark room. It's called a dark room because it's a dark room. It has to be, otherwise it's going to expose the film and ruin your pictures. But you can have a red light in there. The red light doesn't affect the film in the same way. Red lights aren't bright. When you have a single red light, not bright at all. So you go into this dark room, and the first moment you walk in, you can't see a thing. It's like the, the red light's enough where you can like not run into tables, but how am I going to get work done? This weird thing happens, though. Over time, your eyes adjust. And everyone's experienced that before. You're in a dark place. You're like, well, this is really dark in here. And then like 10 minutes, you're like, oh, it's not as dark anymore. It's not that it got brighter. Your eyes adjusted. And there's this moment in the midst of my suffering when my eyes started to adjust. And there's two things I saw. First is, is like I was looking at the walls of the pit and I just saw claw marks all over it. My futile attempts to get out. Deep, deep claw marks that barely made a difference. And I realized I was never going to be able to get out. Like I was, it was futile. What I was trying to do, it's like beating at the air is futile. The second thing is I turned and I saw Jesus sitting at the base of the pit. And I had that same sense that I shared a moment ago. Why do I want to leave the pit if this is where Jesus is? He had been with me the whole time. I was so caught up on trying to get out, so caught up on thinking the pit was bad that I didn't even bother to look if Jesus was there. He wasn't hiding from me. He was sitting right there with me. In our deepest struggles, in our deepest suffering, Jesus is sitting right there with us. But sometimes we don't see him. Sometimes we don't even look for him because we're convinced that we shouldn't be struggling, that we shouldn't be suffering, that unjust things shouldn't happen to us. Our self-preservation kicks in and we feel the opposite of joy. We feel the opposite of peace. But when we realize that Jesus is there, what Bamboo talked about is what happens. We feel an indescribable, unexpected peace because where Jesus is is where the peace is. Suddenly, we don't have this gnawing urge to leave. It could still be hard. It could still be hurt. Don't get me wrong. Those stones hurt when they hit Stephen. But there was something deeper that he was experiencing because Jesus was right there standing at the right hand of God. He was with him. Suffering is hard. We're going to come back to this idea of suffering a lot because in the epistles, they have to deal with it a lot because this moment, this moment kicked off a new 
a new journey for the disciples and the apostles, for those that decided to follow Christ. This changed everything. It's no longer inconveniences. If you follow Jesus, it could cost you everything from this point on. For some, point, from, for some people, it did cost them everything. And yet, the Apostle Paul, who lost everything and called it all rubbish and went through so much torture, so much pain, so much rejection, is at the end of his life saying, I've learned the secret to being content in all situations and rejoice in the Lord always. I'll say it again, rejoice. With scars all over his body, with people who in his life who used to love him, who have disowned him, right? Locked up when he shouldn't have been locked up. He's rejoicing. We're talking about a different reality than we grew up knowing. We're talking about a different reality than meets our logic. But what Acts is showing us is that that reality is real and that we're invited into it. I also want to point out something else before we move on from Stephen. It is very easy for us in these stories to villainize, to see these Hellenistic Jews who are enraged to the point of stopping their ears and stoning an innocent man, to see them as villains. Stephen's trying to stop us from doing that. You caught that, right? He says, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. So if even Stephen isn't villainizing them, what gives us the right to villainize them? We tend to do it with the Gospels too, and the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the teachers of the law who crucified Jesus. Because we, <laughs> we're raised into this idea of good guys and bad guys. Most movies and shows, you got the good guy and you got the bad guy. And you know how the tropes work out. The good guy like goes on this redemptive arc and it looks like they're going to lose, but they're going to win in the end. And the bad guys, it looks like they're going to win, but they're going to lose in the end. Right? But, but there's a, no redemption for them, the bad guys, because they're villains, they're evil, they're bad. But Jesus said the same thing. Forgive them for they know not what they're doing. What Stephen and Jesus recognized in that moment is they were able to see each person in that crowd as God saw them as made in the image of God, as created, as fearfully and wonderfully made. Also, as choosing a direction that was not towards full life, of choosing a direction that was towards self-preservation, of choosing to align themselves with things that at times were evil. But were they villains? Stephen would say no. I think that's part of why he yelled out do not hold this sin against them. Because that phrase is actually just for God, right? Like only God needed to hear that because God's the one who could choose to hold or not hold. I wonder how many people were in the midst of this that ended up having a seed planted that at some point looked back at that time and recognized, oh my goodness, I justified something horrible because there may have been people in that crowd that believed that they were honoring God because Leviticus 24 verses 10 through 23 talks about if somebody blasphemes against God, they should be taken outside of the city and that they should be stoned. There may have been people in that crowd that are saying, I, the scrolls that I've heard do not talk about Jesus. All right. 
And what I understand about the Messiah, that's not what I see in Jesus. So what Stephen is saying is blasphemous. And scripture tells me that I should take him outside of the city and stone him. And we can make justifications. Throughout human history, we have used the Bible to justify lots of things. A whole lot of things. And we can do that believing that we are honoring God. They're not villains, but they're caught in human logic. They're caught in self-preservation. Because for some of them in that crowd, it may have been preservation of their way in life. Because if what Stephen is saying is true, then that's going to change the authority I have or the power I have or, the, or everything that I've spent my life believing. I've spent my whole life believing this and you're telling me that I'm wrong? That's a big ask, Stephen. Right? We can justify things in our minds because of that self-preservation. And the only way we could break from that reality, break from that human logic, is what Jesus called us to, which was so hard, is to die to self. And that's not a small ask. Dying to self is not a small ask at all. Jesus knew that. (laughs) Jesus was very explicitly clear about that multiple times. He said, if you want to follow me, you got to die to all this. you got to hate your father and mother. Did Jesus hate parents? Did Jesus hate family? No. There's plenty of scripture that indicates how much he valued family. But what he was saying is, there are things that we will position above God, above God, even good things. And if we're putting anything above God, then we're not actually seeking God. We're not seeking him first for sure, but ultimately we're not going to be seeking God because at any point that this other thing is threatened, we're going to default to protecting that. Even good things, even important things, even things God has given us. How many times has somebody fought to save a ministry they felt like God called them to? to the point of dishonoring God. Because they came to the point of protecting the ministry. It was about the ministry. Was, is ministry bad? No. Was that ministry necessarily bad? No. But at some point, it shifted from being, I'm seeking God, I'm following God. Stephen was called to a ministry. If he's killed, he can't take care of the widows. Stephen could have said, I've got to protect my life because I was called to care for the widows. Stephen knew that his calling was to seek the Spirit and to follow that, whatever that looked like, even if it meant him losing his ministry or his life. So we've got to be careful not to villainize because the battle isn't against flesh and blood. We're going to think it is sometimes, a lot of times, but it's not. So we've only hit the first eight chapters. Oh, yes. I, this stuck out to me the last time I read this story, just how quickly it transitions from, you know, what Stephen calls out, like, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit and forgive them. And right away it starts talking about Saul. <laughs> and it kind of just, like, really stuck out to me, like, not that I think God wouldn't have intervened in Saul's life, but I don't know. I just kind of, I'm curious what you think about that, the connection between, you know, the choice Stephen made to like pray that prayer, mm-hmm. call that out to God, and the authority he had in that moment to pray that prayer, in connection with Saul, like the story, like immediately after Saul being redeemed yeah. for Christ, yeah, and like what the connection was, like because he was there, yeah. So like in him praying that, do you think that was God then using that as an open door to then yeah rescue and redeem Saul? And I'm really glad you said that because <laughs> I wanted to mention something about that. And I couldn't remember if I have it in the later slide because I think you're exactly right. I kind of wish 
there was something explicit in scripture where Paul in one of his letters said, and I recall when I was approving of Stephen, like we could infer certain things, but I would be, personally, I would be very surprised if Paul didn't have moments in his life where he had to process this. Because that was, Stephen was the first martyr. That's not a small thing. I mean, that was the first murder of a Christian that anybody had witnessed and that Paul had witnessed. And he gave a big old thumbs up to it. And then was so like on board with this that he's like, I kind of want to see more of this. And I, I do, I, I wonder that. I wonder if there were times as God was sifting through things in his heart, is refining his heart, bringing the dross up as he was going through the fire. And one of those things was remembering Stephen crying out and recalling what he must have felt in that moment, smiling. This is a, it's an intense image, but I just saw some of these images recently and I'm going to share it because I feel like it can capture the severe brokenness of the moment. Uh, in American history, you know, we talked about division and there is a very dark period in American history where many people who were black were uh, lynched and hung from trees, among other things. But there are images out there, not just images, postcards, where you see the image of someone hanging and then a crowd, a huge crowd around them smiling for a picture. It's not a candid picture. It is a staged picture. And I was looking at some of these recently, and there were even kids in some of these pictures. One little girl, probably about the age of my daughter, looking up at a man hanging from a tree and just and like this, like this, I don't even know how to describe it. I'm, in the, my head, it's like a grotesque smile. <laughs> but like, this is a little girl, mind you, not a villain, not evil. This is the power of brokenness in the human heart. That these people were approving of something that we would look at and say, that is horrendous. They did not know what they were doing. They knew what they were doing, but they did not know really at the depth core of all of it, what was really going on. The people crucifying Jesus knew what they were doing, but they didn't actually really know what they were participating in. The people who were enraged and throwing stones at Stephen, like they knew what they were doing. They, they knew to pick up stones, but they didn't actually really know. And so that image sits with me of postcards that people sent and like cheerfully wrote on the back, hey, look what we did. Like, and I'm not even gonna name some of the things that people wrote because it's like, that's horrible. How could people be this broken? But this is what the scene might've looked like there. Paul approved of Stephen being murdered. If there were pictures back then, imagine that someone took a picture and Stephen's bloodied and beaten on the ground and everyone's smiling around him holding the rocks that they were using. And there's Paul sitting there. And let's say Paul's going through his old things and he comes across that postcard and he sees himself. Like he has to contend with that. He has to contend with that. And this is the beautiful thing. It's that God loves him. Jesus loved him so much, he knocked him off his feet and didn't say, why are you persecuting me? You're out. I'm taking your life. No, he actually hires him. <laughs> he actually chooses him to be an ambassador of Christ, to go to the Gentiles across the known world. That's not logical. 
but the wisdom of God is foolishness to man. Paul later says, I do not understand what I do, for what I hate to do, I do, and what I want to do, I don't. Like this brokenness still, he had to still contend with that. But I believe that, I do believe that God used Stephen's words, shouted out loud to plant a seed that not only brought Paul to a place of having to contend with that, but also to recognize, and yet in light of my lowest moment, Jesus chose me. Jesus loves me. That makes no sense to me because I wouldn't have chosen. I'm the chief of sinners. I would not have chosen me, and Jesus chose me. How much more for us, right? None of us, to my knowledge, have overseen the persecution of a Christian. But there are things in our lives that we feel like disqualify us from the love of God. There are things in our lives that we feel like God won't forgive. There are things in our lives that keep us from welcoming the Holy Spirit because if the Holy Spirit sees that part of me, spoiler, the Holy Spirit's already seen it. God already knows, and he already loves you. This is why Acts is so important. It's not just some story, but what they, they, they Paul says, like, why are you looking at us about this guy getting healed? We're just men like you. Like, they'll say this later. People start to want to worship them as, worship them as gods. And they're like, oh, no, 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 we're just men. They are just people like us going on this wild ride to demonstrate what this wild ride could look like for us. So Acts 1 through 8, this is what we've seen. A group of God followers who became Christ followers discovers, discovers Jesus is not only alive, but calling them to continue his work with the help of the Holy Spirit. After waiting, they receive the Spirit and begin to speak and do things beyond their capacity. They go from a core group, there's the 12, there's 120, to thousands immediately. And it is clear they're being called to something different than the previous three years. Resistance escalates from mocking to questioning to accusing to imprisonment to beatings and eventually to execution. In the midst, their resolve is deepened. Their sharing increases and they die to self like they never had before. They may have been content to be a megachurch in Jerusalem, but that's all about to change, right? Big old church of thousands. Some of them might have been like, cool, we can do this. But this moment with Stephen changes that. The goal was never to be thousands in this one area and then people can come and fill in. Because what did Jesus say? Go. Go into all the world. To all nations. This became the impetus to that happening in a way that's actually abundantly more than they could ask or imagine. So in our last few minutes before break, I just want to open the floor. I've really enjoyed, uh, interject at any point, which y'all been doing is good. I like that. Interject, because here's what's beautiful. Like I told y'all, I, have, I was not able to run through these in live time, so I haven't known when these would stop. But the first session stopped at perfectly the right time. The second session I knew would probably go long, but looky here, like it stopped <laughs> right before break. So I'm not worried about timing at all. So feel free to interject, but I am directly inviting it now. What are some other things that are stirring in your heart um, that either you want to ask or just stay or whatever before we jump to break? What is the spirit stirring?
I'm, I'm just feeling challenged and convicted. Like, what would I, what would I do? You know, if I was in Stephen's position, would I have the humility to, to pray that prayer mm-hmm. and you know see the fruit that came from it? Like with Paul, he wrote so much of the New Testament and did so much for the kingdom. And what if he hadn't prayed, you know, for him? You know, there's a there's an interesting thing in there that I think about often. So I want to point out two things. The first is the good news is you don't actually need humility. You need the spirit. Right? Because humility is a part of it, right? But we can focus on the human aspects and the human qualities that we can learn and grow and build and become better and better at. And that's not bad, but if we're relying on our own capacity for that. Like so often in scripture, Gideon, Gideon, I'm not, uh, why are you choosing me? I'm, I'm the least of the least of the least. Go get somebody stronger, wiser, with more reputation. But so often in scripture, we see that the least of these are chosen. Why? Why are the least of these chosen? I mean, who gets the glory if the best are chosen? They do. Of course he won the battle. The dude's 20 feet tall and like can lift oxen up. And But what do people say when the least of these win the battle? No way. No way. Someone else added, because that couldn't have been him, and yet there he is. When they were looking at Moses, Oh my gosh, isn't, the guy, isn't this the guy that lost his temper and killed someone? We told him, who are you to be ruler and judge over us? Like, how is he, how is he turning this to, to blood? And how is he parting that? What in the world? Right? Like, it doesn't have to be us forcing these things. Like, we don't have to be afraid, will I have enough boldness? Will I be brave enough? What we have to say is, am I willing to seek the Spirit? And even in that, we don't have to rely on our own power. It's just an invitation to step. The Spirit can fill in the gaps. But the second piece is this. And I think about this often. God knows what he wants to accomplish. If Jesus wanted to talk to Paul, he still could. I wonder if there are times that when we let our humanity dictate what we do and how we respond, we miss out on opportunities, not just for ourselves, but for others. I think about the hard situation that I was in with the work environment, and there weren't villains that were doing it, but they were being led by very human thinking. And I knew God had called me to that space. And in fact, the, <laughs> the person who was my pastor, spiritual father, and also chair of the board, directly said to one of the people that was making things hard for me, I am confident that Paul is the one for this role and that Paul is operating as he's supposed to be. Like, like even saying that, things still were continuing to be bad, right? And I wonder sometimes, could it have been different? It was a ministry, so could it have been different if these Christ followers had made accepted some invitations from the Spirit. What, could I still be working there and thriving, right? And so I think this is the thing. 
when we're given invitations from the Spirit, it's not just for us, but it's for the body, for the growth of the body. We're going to come back to a verse that presses in. We talked about it in the Apest giftings, the Apostle, Prophet, Evangelist, Shepherd, Teacher, that it's for, it's not just so that, oh, this person has the apostolic gift for them. No, it's for the body, for the growth of the body, the maturity of the body. And when we're given these invitations, it's not just for us, but it's for the body. And when we choose to follow our human thinking, our human plans, and our human logic, it could, it could cost something for someone else. I think that's something we have to contend with, but not get weighed down by guilt with in the wrong way, because there is still grace in that. It makes me think of when Jesus was outside Jerusalem and weeping and saying, like, if only like, this was for you, and if only you could hear what I'm saying to you, what could have been? Is, could there have been a scenario in which they got it and things look different? I don't know. It's a little easier for me to think in terms of Peter walking on the water. I don't know if I shared this yesterday, but I'm going to share it again anyways. Because Peter had that pivotal moment where he could have accepted the invitation to step into certain death because he was stepping towards Jesus, not towards his logic. And he chose not to. And the story we get is he sinks. Jesus graciously saves him, even though he missed that opportunity invitation. And he takes him back to the boat. But could there have been a story in scripture where instead he says, this is certain death. I'm, I'm going to die. I'm going to die. I'm going to die. Whoa. And, he, and he, his foot lands. He takes another. And maybe there's still hard steps, but like now he's walking. And then he makes Jesus. And he's standing next to Jesus, and he turns around to the disciples. He says, come on, come on. And they all jump out the boat, and they're all, like, dancing. And they're having this big dancing party on the waves. And, like, John's up there on a big wave, like, ah, I'm up here. Like, they're going, like, and imagine their faith after that moment. Can you believe we walked on water? Think about when Jesus sent them out in twos, and they came back, and they're, like, losing their minds. We've been, we've been able to drive out spirits. Like, what? Like, you and me? Like, that could have been the story. Peter didn't accept that invitation. He missed out on that opportunity. And it cost the disciples in the boat that opportunity. None of them got out the boat. He was the one that could have shepherded them into a deeper level of faith. But it was a missed opportunity. It was not Jesus saying, you are sinful and you're out. You're no longer a disciple. Because they ended up doing worse things than that, right? Jesus laments the times that they miss it. You hear it in his voice often, like, where is your faith? Because he knows what could be. But even when that's missed, he still loves. He still accepts. He still extends grace. So Stephen could have, in fear, not shouted out because they might throw more stones. And it could have changed what Paul's journey looked like. But he accepted that invitation. And even though we're inferring, I do believe that that played a big role in Paul's journey. So that's a really good thing. So the opportunity, the invitation, is to accept the invitation of the Spirit, but also to know God's grace when we inevitably don't do that. Because we will still have our brokenness and our human thinking. We'll still have our self-preservation. And God meets us in that space, sometimes with a little bit of a rebuke like Jesus did, like, ah, where's your faith? <laughs> now let's go.